Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Robin Farman Farmayan with me from San Francisco. Welcome to my podcast, Robin. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. You actually landed on my radar thanks to our joint friend, Raya Bichakri, that I met uh, in uh, June this summer in Napoli. Oh, that's uh, so, awesome. <laughs> yeah, she's an amazing person and I'm really grateful for this uh, recommendation and, and discovery of, of you. And uh, so for those of you who haven't heard of, of Robin before, uh, she is a professional speaker, entrepreneur and uh, angel investor driving high level business development for cutting edge medical and biotech companies. And she's now the CEO and co-founder of Arrow, a dynamic vision correction company. So Robin, let's start with what I think is the most important thing to understand about people in a way. It's really your, your why. I mean, why do you do what you do, actually? Sure. So I've worked on the craziest companies, everything from early stage pharmaceutical, working on curing cancer or treating autoimmune disease to disruptive sleep apnea or inhaled insulin devices. So really kind of crazy companies out there. And it's because of my childhood. So as a teenager, I was misdiagnosed with an autoimmune disease. By the time I was 26, I'd had 43 hospitalizations, six major surgeries, and three organs removed for the misdiagnosis. I finally took control of my healthcare at that point, fired my healthcare team, rebuilt it with professionals that worked with me as a team and a colleague. I ended up getting diagnosed correctly, put on a medication called Remicade, and I went into remission overnight. And so from that day forward, I, I realized, you know what, I am standing here today, not just because of the doctor that diagnosed me correctly, but because of the huge healthcare system. And so I believe in paying it back by paying it forward. So my life goal now is to impact at least 100 million patients worldwide. What an experience and what a, what a story, really, Robin. And why? I'm just curious. Why, why did you, um, I mean, 100 million is a lot of people, but is there anything specific behind that particular number? Yes. So diseases or disorders like sleep apnea, cancer, autoimmune disease, uh, infectious disease, and things like that all have more than 100 million patients worldwide. So I picked that, that number because it really tackles the biggest problems in healthcare in terms of which diseases are the most prevalent. And so just really focusing on those. And so that's kind of my cutoff point. I'm like, is there 100 million people in the world that this would impact? If not, then maybe it's not the company I should be involved with. Mm. And uh, I know that you, you're giving a lot of talks uh, around in the world also to raise awareness about all of this. And um, one of those is also touching on, on healthcare and the world of healthcare in general that needs uh, disrupting. Uh, so in, in a way, I guess we're all kind of thrilled about it. At the same time, a little bit anxious and fearful around it because Obviously, technology is involved, and, and the first that comes to mind is the importance of a human kind of connection with doctors and nurses and people who are going to, you know, take care of you should you need it. So how is this going to play out? And how, what's happening already, actually? 
Oh, there are so many exciting things going on in technology and healthcare. It's fantastic. And the really cool thing about technology is it makes things seamless, right? So really offloading a lot of the either busy work. So things like if you're a nurse, a lot of your time is spent taking vital signs and then writing down the numbers and inputting it into the computer across the room. And that actually takes a significant amount of time from a nurse's, you know, nurse's day when she could be interacting directly with patients. And the same thing with physicians. So when you go into your physician, I believe physicians spend about, in the United States, at least two hours on the EMR for every one hour of direct patient care. And so by making things much more seamless, we can offload these tasks like continuous vital sign monitoring, which we're already doing, or um, automatically inputting things into the EMR, which again, this is cutting edge tech, but yeah, there are programs that are doing this for the doctor and it'll just get better and better. And so it will allow more human connection instead of less. How has these technologies already changed uh, uh, healthcare? I mean, I I live mainly in Sweden and and a bit also in Italy and so on. And I haven't seen very much of of this uh, actually kind of happening uh, for me as a patient when I'm visiting hospitals and so on. You might not be seeing it yet, uh, but you will be seeing it a lot more over the next five years. The things that you haven't seen that are going on behind the scenes that are directly going to impact patients are things like artificial intelligence for drug discovery, dramatically increasing um, how many drugs we can get discovered and potentially streamlining that so that we can get more medications to market. There are things like sensor and camera technology that are making things smaller and less expensive so that clinics and hospitals can get things like portable ultrasound machines or even like AI programs that can augment the physician. So there's a company called IDX, and it actually gives a binary answer to whether a patient has diabetic retinopathy or not. So it reads the scans for the physician. Right. So offloading some of those tasks. So these things are going on behind the scenes that you don't actually see or or experience yet, but it is already impacting your care. Now, going forward, and we're seeing this, especially in the United States, in cutting edge um, healthcare, really shifting it from the clinic and hospital where it is incredibly expensive to administer purely because you've got a brick and mortar. That needs everything from janitors to, you know, really expensive equipment and electricity bills and everything, right? Shifting a lot of that care out of that expensive environment and into the patient's home. So companies like Tidocare, they're based in Israel and they are doing widespread distribution, at least in the United States, in Best Buy. Um, and of course, they're available in Israel. And I'm, I'm not sure if they've launched in Europe yet, but if they haven't, they will soon. And what it is, is four clinical grade CE Mark and FDA approved medical devices that the patient buys themselves. So they go to Best Buy and they just buy this $300 kit and it comes with an otoscope, which is what you look in the ear, a stethoscope, a tongue depressor, and a temperature monitor. Now, all of these are clinical grade. And what happens is you attach them to the video camera. You call a physician over video. So say you've got a two-year-old toddler who is screaming because they have an earache. Instead of dragging them to an emergency room or a walk-in clinic, you call the doctor on video. She walks you through using the otoscope on the child's ear or putting a tongue depressor down the child's throat. And she is the one who sees the video camera feed of those devices. So it's as if the physician is actually reaching her hand through the computer and touching the patient herself. And so we're seeing a lot of that kind of thing going on already. It's just 
the most cutting edge and, and really just getting the word out because one $300 kit plus, you know, maybe $50 visits or $60 visits to the physician, and that's assuming it's not covered, is going to save you potentially 10 different, you know, clinic visits if you've got a toddler who has a reoccurring ear infection or reoccurring uh, tonsil problems or throat problems. Because instead of dragging them every single time, you just use that same kit that cost you $300 one time. Amazing. But I'm also thinking about, uh, I mean, it's so predictive analytics, it's also the kind of early onset diagnostics involved and so on. Will this eventually lead to some kind of, um, how can I say, less use of medicine, actually? Absolutely. So the faster we can catch things, the more treatable or even solvable. So when you're looking at something like dementia, dementia is a huge worldwide problem. 30% of dementia cases are preventable or avoidable if you catch it early enough. And so you've got companies like BrainCheck, which is very cool. Typically, if you, if you had to catch early stage dementia when it's actually treatable by behavior modification, diet, as well as pharmaceuticals, really, at the early stages of the actual disease, they work. They don't work in later stages. But the problem is, is that we don't go to neurologists to get our brains tested until really it's impacting our daily life. Like most people have never been to a neurologist. And it's just a standard like 10 minute exam to really measure your brain health. And so companies like BrainCheck, what they're doing is they're distributing through primary care offices. And I think you can get it directly sometimes too. And it's just an app and they've taken the standard neurological exams, they've electronified them and gamified them. So all you need to do is go on the app, for 10 minutes, maybe once or twice a year, and you are measuring your brain health the same way we measure blood pressure or cholesterol readings so that you can catch if you have a, even a slight alteration in your brain health, immediately you can catch it. The doctor can tell you kind of different options so that you can ward off or even potentially completely avoid getting dementia. Wow, that's amazing because it's so, so, so needed. But what does this is, exist already or is it in the world? Yes. Yeah. It's existed for years. Yeah, they're using it in the United States through primary care. It's again, it's just these things that are cutting edge and educating people is one of the big problems because, of course, distributing an app like BrainCheck is incredibly easy. I mean, you just download it, right? And then you, you play a fun game for a few minutes. It's just people aren't aware of it. And people aren't thinking about the fact that, oh, we should really be checking for dementia early on and getting really that baseline on our brain health. So actually what you're doing is, is fantastic because now everyone who's listened to this is thinking, oh, wait, I can track my brain health. <laughs> you just really have to educate people. This is a whole new concept, like tracking your brain health or continuously monitoring your blood pressure so that you can catch pre-hypertension before it turns into hypertension. And hypertension is one of the five most expensive diseases to treat. So is, is there anything else before we move on uh, to some other questions around this that in terms of, you know, tips and ideas of things that people definitely should check out uh, in addition to what you just said? Sure. So a lot of the wearable devices. So it's not just Apple Watch. Uh, of course, Apple Watch has the single lead EKG monitor on its watch, which is clinical grade, which means it is accurate information versus things like an accelerometer. Accelerometers, of course, we know are not really accurate in terms of step counts. But when something is called clinical grade, it is accurate. And so getting things like the clinical grade EKG monitor, 
Apple is talking to the FDA about having many more devices put on their Apple Watch. But then there's Omron's blood pressure monitoring watch, which came out in March, and it's direct to consumer. And so it's just a watch that you wear, and it'll continuously monitor you know, throughout the night and things like that when you're sleeping. There's a watch that does pulse oximetry, which measures the oxygen in your blood, and again, clinical grade. And so really getting these to patients um, right away so we can track those things. And again, uh, people's anxiety about where does this all information about us and our health, where is it downloaded and what is it used for? And, you know, the general kind of question of trust nowadays. How careful should we be around that? So I wouldn't worry. So think about it. So why would somebody want your blood pressure monitor readings? They don't right? So you have to worry about two things, criminals and the government in terms of covering your health care or, or employment, right? So already governments and in, in the United States, all the insurers, they have all of our health data to begin with, and they always have, right? And so it's really about the rules and regulations of the country for employment and or um, coverage of health care that will really dictate that because that cat is out of the bag. They already have all of our, our electronic medical records, right? But in terms of criminals, they don't care about your health data. They really don't. There's no, there's no way to monetize an individual's health data unless you're going to blackmail them or something and say, I'm going to tell the world you have heart disease. Well, that's no big deal, right? No one's really doing that. What you have to worry about is that some of these devices, if they are hooked into an electronic medical record, and say like the doctor brings home the computer that's not on a secure network, it's piggybacking. It's criminals getting in through wearable tech devices that are connected to electronic medical records, which are connected to billing or social security numbers or other identifiers like tax identifying numbers. That's when it connects to the financials. That's what you worry about. But in terms of your Fitbit data or your Apple Watch data, nobody cares about that. Like there's, there's no way to monetize that if you're a criminal. And just tell me briefly about this, um, the latest company that you're now involved in as a CEO and co-founder, Arrow, about vision correction. How, how does that happen? So what we've done is uh, we've created a method for a new meta material, which is an optic screen, which can be used for multiple things. One of the applications we're using it for is dynamic vision correction. So it's a combination of nanotechnology, nano video cameras, night, nano light emitters, and graphene. Graphene is this uh, fantastic meta material that has a lot of magical properties. And so putting those in, uh, replacing eyeglass lenses with this new optic screen that we've created to do dynamic vision correction. So when you look at an object, it'll automatically focus for you. So you can replace your trifocals, bifocals, readers, or any other type of prescription eyewear. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's very futuristic and very cutting edge. <laughs> <laughs> so but how far away, I mean, is it already, things are already launched so that we can... Uh... Or use it or? No, no, no. We, we, are, we filed our provisionals and we're working on the prototype now. Okay. So what, what's your guess in terms of time? Uh, Probably within a year or so, we'll have, the, uh, we'll have a working prototype. Wow. Amazing. Robbins, you're doing, you're doing so much and so many different things. And you're also in, in worlds that are quite complex. I mean, what, what kind of education background uh, talents do you have in order to to absorb all of this and 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 uh, drive it 
So I hacked my education. So I, I happened to have gone to some boarding schools in the United States for high school, which really laid a massive foundation of learning. So by the time I got out of high school, I was already so far advanced from most people who were 18, 19 years old. But um, I went and got an undergrad degree, a BS in, uh, in management. So really just a basic four-year business degree. So I studied econ, finance, all that kind of stuff. And then the rest of my education, I hacked. So I went to Stanford and took four or five courses there. I went and did some Harvard executive programs. I went to Wellesley and studied a few programs there. And if you in the United States, because, you know, of course, education here is very expensive. This isn't the reason I did it. I'm just a, you know, early stage entrepreneur life hacker to begin with. But you can go to any of the top universities and take classes. You don't have to be matriculated and it doesn't cost you $50,000 a year to take, you know, go full time. If you take a one off class at Stanford, it's anywhere from $350 to like $2,000. And I'm like, wait a second, so I can just take a whole bunch of Stanford classes and basically get the same education as someone who's paying for their undergrad or master's. <laughs> but I just do it one off because I'm not paying for that piece of paper. And so I really just decided to learn what I needed to learn after getting the degree in management. Mm. Fantastic. Thank you. You gave me a great idea for my son. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> No, but really, yeah, education is a, it's a special uh, chapter that is uh, so important. So I'm happy that our friend Raya Bichakri is doing what she can. Yeah, she gets it because right now the way it's working and doing like this four years in college, you know, undergrad and then graduate and bankrupting people, at least here, you know, people are in debt for, for decades after going to school. It's like, why? Let's hack it. There's so so easy to learn now from your own environment. You no longer need that classroom. Yeah, it's, it's still people are stuck a little bit. At least parents are maybe stuck with with this idea about you have to go to the you know highly ranked schools in order to get the passport to open certain doors to jobs and whatever. But I agree, it's it's more it's more your drive and your your understanding of yourself and your purpose and everything. The reason why you do things is more important that they figure out than rather having the perfect uh, degree from the perfect school. What would you say is your passion? But in the sense that really, really that thing that you are also willing to suffer for if needed? As an early stage entrepreneur, <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, my income is never guaranteed. I'm constantly either going off salary to start a new company where, where it's the terrifying thing of having to raise money, or I am relying on my professional speaking and coaching because I do a lot of career coaching, especially for uh, for minorities and women, but for men as well. And so like it's never guaranteed income, but I love what I do. And I am a big believer in raising people up. So that's why I love to do the coaching and the professional speaking to educate people and really help them forward in their careers and their lives and achieve their goals. And then, you know, doing these early stage, massively cutting edge companies that could really be a game changer worldwide. So it's extremely high risk and extremely high reward when successful. And and you you are also and have been an angel investor in different uh, companies and projects and so on. As a thought leader, which is fantastic as a professional speaker, companies let me in on rounds for a lot less than a normal person. So I've been able to do like a pre-IPO round and put in just five figures, like a small amount. Because of course, as an angel investor, it's just my savings, my personal savings versus uh, minimums are usually like 150000 
And so I'm able to get in on rounds like that for less money because, and then I'm involved with the company, which is fantastic. Yeah. So that's how I became involved with a couple of companies. Fantastic. And what would you say are like the transformational points in your uh, life that have influenced you the most uh, so far? Oh, so this comes down to uh, why I wrote the second book, The Thought Leader Formula. And it's because early in my career in Silicon Valley, I'm a petite, blonde, very high energy female. And that, you know, can be hard, let's say, in a very male driven environment. And so I was sabotaged. I was sexually abused. I was harassed. It was actually pretty hardcore. And so I realized early after talking to HR that you can't fight this. Like HR exists to help the company and make sure to protect the company. So if in fact, you know, if they are dealing with someone like me, it's easier to get rid of someone like me than get rid of the abuser because the abuser is not going to follow the rules. Right. And so I realized that really early on. And so I said, okay, well, I can't fight against this through the legal quote unquote channels. I'm going to change the game. And so I went home one weekend and I spent the entire weekend creating a five-year project plan for myself to become a professional speaker and thought leader in my world of expertise. And let me tell you, it worked better than my wildest dreams. I had on my project plan to publish a book about a year into my thought leadership journey. And that included things like hiring PR, doing articles in very specific places under specific type of content. And then writing the first book, which is called The Patient as CEO. And the day that first book published was like turning off a light switch on abuse and harassment. Nobody has remotely pushed me down in the past five or six years now. It literally changed the power dynamic overnight. And so that was a massive change in my career. And now I would like to teach a lot of other women and anyone who has faced any type of bias or bullying or abuse in the workplace how to become known for their expertise so that they can change the game themselves. And then it drives uh, being able to get promoted more easily, uh, greater negotiating power for your salary. And then in addition, it can help drive customers to your company. When you were working in this, in this company where you had uh, these bad experiences, I mean, you were there in a certain professional role at the time. So you were, you could say, an expert in the field that you were working with there. But still, that kind of expertise feeling shifted through the book as a symbol of this uh, knowledge. Exactly, because I was a vice president, but there were certain men that were constantly taking credit for my work or deleting me from the website. So literally pushing me down as hard as possible to make sure that nobody knew I existed. And so with the book, no one could deny that I, was, that I existed anymore. All of a sudden, it changes the equation so much that people actually assume sometimes that like, I'm the scientist, or I'm the physician, or I'm the engineer who's creating some of the technology I work on. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm on the business side. But what it's changed so much that people thought went from thinking or being, uh, being told that I was an executive assistant to being you know, the smartest person in the company. And all that took was a book. And so now I teach people how to really set up that environment for themselves and how to get a book done really quickly 
inexpensively and get it up there as a tool versus being this thing where, where most people are thinking, oh my gosh, I can't write a book. It takes two years. And then how do you get an agent and a publisher? And, and what do I do? And I teach you a really streamlined process. In fact, um, my friend, Monica Prophet, so she used to be an artist and she was like, Robin, you know, what do I do? I was, I was coaching her for a while and I told her, you know what, let's have you write, you know, a 20 or 50 page PDF. Basically, she wanted to become an expert or known for her expertise in blockchain. So she wrote Blockchain 101. It took her eight days to just really write down everything she knew about the 101 of blockchain because that's the easy, easy, easy stuff. Everybody knows the 101 of their own area of expertise. She wrote it in about eight days, took my cover, switched out the photos, switched out the words, formatted it for Amazon and uploaded it. Within three months, she was asked to speak at MIT. People are getting these kind of um, ideas or fears, I guess, uh, in general. Like, I might be good at what I do, but am I good at writing it down? Ah, yep. So there are multiple hacks for this. And I tell people, listen, choose the top five things you're best at and outsource the rest. Just because you're an expert in your, in your vertical, right, doesn't mean you are an expert writer. Writing is an actual skill that you need to build up over time. So there are multiple hacks. First, um, like I used a company called Scripted, and I'm now an expert writer. I can sit down and write a book myself, but it also takes way too much time to do it on your own. So I hired this company, and what they did is they spent 14 hours on the phone with me. I talked my entire book. So for the first few hours, they had this expert who's just an expert in outlining, and that's all she does all day long is outline books. And so we got a solid outline in place and then that was locked. And then I got on the phone with somebody else who for the next 10 hours over a period of time took me through my entire outline and asked me questions. And I just talked and I answered every single bullet point on my outline because this is my content. I know it backwards and forwards. What they do is they record that, transcribe it, edit it perfectly because this is an expert writing editor and then send it back to you in a perfect book form. That's amazing. Right. And so like everyone has 14 hours to do something like that. And there's another hack because that's pretty expensive. That usually costs twenty to $30,000, those types of services. There's plenty of companies doing it. I used a company called Scribe Media, but there's another hack. So you can do instead, say you've never written an article and writing an article is really scary because again, it's a skill that you need to actually work on. So use one of the content um, copywriting sites companies like scripted.com. You go on there and for $60 an article, you hire uh, writers to write you individual articles. So say you're um, want to do uh, how to do a podcast 101, right? And so you just have different writers write maybe 10 different articles for you. One is on um, how to set up the podcast. Uh, another article is on what type of software is best to use. Another article is on what's the best editing that you should be using. And then what you do is you take those 10 articles, put it together, write a forward or a con and a conclusion, or hire a virtual assistant to write a forward and a conclusion, and bam, that's your book. Mm. <laughs> like, seriously, it is that easy. Because the other secret is, is that most books out there are self-published. I self-published my first book. My second book, I went through a traditional publisher. Let me tell you, I'm never going to do that again. I will self-publish every single one of my books. So 100%, I would say to everyone listening, 
go that route. Do not go the agent and traditional publisher route. It's a waste of time. And you're using this as a tool in your profession and career. You're not a full-time author. Like that's not your goal. So there's no reason to go through those things. Secondly, most people are not going to ever read your book. It's just the facts. Most books out there sell hundreds of copies. Very few sell thousands and even fewer still like the top 5% sell over 10,000. You are not going to be in that top 5%, right? You just, so put that in your head right now. It's not about getting the perfect content into your book. Although my book is very well done. So go get the thought leader formula, (laughs) but um, it's not really getting the content in the book so much as people knowing you wrote a book. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a book effect. It's the book effect. So make sure your cover is perfect. I always put my photo on it because I'm not trying to sell the book necessarily. I'm trying to sell my professional speaking, right? Or my ability to do my job in my my companies that I'm working with. Like right now, I'm a CEO. So I've got to drive business development. I've got to drive funding towards the company. So the fact that the book sums up my entire platform with the title and the subtitle and the quote on the cover And then a picture of me doing, you know, that's relevant in the thought leader formula. I'm holding a microphone, right? So it's a relevant picture. And that's what people are going to see and remember you for. Wow, Robin. So you gave us a lot of um, info on, on in case people have been thinking. I think most people are somehow, sometime in, in their life thinking about that that book that they need to write, uh, either to kind of get it out there just to share or whether they want to use it for a specific, to position themselves as experts. In terms of businesses and, and companies that I that I personally believe are like the best instruments we have to create great change out there and also to see more leadership there, what long-term formula for business do you actually uh, believe in? To make sure you have happy employees. Because happy employees make happy customers, right? Happiness is contagious and content and passion. These things are contagious, right? So if your workforce is terrified and miserable and stressed out, that is going to transfer to your customers no matter who they are, whether it's B2B or B2C or B2G, you know, business to government. It's going to cause stress. And so the happy the employee and the more fulfilled and content, the better they are going to do their job. And then the company overall benefits. So that's really one of my long-term thinking is make sure that your your house is in order. Mm. And and what is the trick, so to say, to get there? Because there's so many people, you know, you've seen probably also surveys of uh, about 75, 80% or so of people going to work every day. They are not engaged and for different reasons. So there's something not clicking. So what do you think is missing? So there are um, multiple, multiple things could be going on. So first off, look at some of the companies that retain employees for long term. Like say if you're a large corporation, companies like GE, right? Like they retain their employees for decades. It is crazy how, how passionate the people I meet uh, who work for GE are, right? And so what are they doing? They do things like move the employees around a lot, so not, not move physically, but move departments, right? They have constant room for advancement. They don't have to do the same thing for more than a couple of years. And you see this in pharmaceutical companies too. Some of the more successful ones like that um, actually retain their employees for 10 or 20 years. It's because they are constantly giving the employees challenges and the employees feel heard and they feel taken care of because they're not stuck in this little box for 10 years. 
They're constantly growing, constantly learning, and there's constantly room for advancement. Now, when you're talking about smaller companies like early stage companies, it's a very different mentality of somebody who's going to go into a large corporation and somebody who's going to go into a high risk early stage company. For the early stagers, it's really about um, people buying into the actual mission, right? So did they drink the Kool-Aid, right? Do they believe in the overall mission? And, and that really helps get people out of bed every day because when you're in the early stage stuff, you know every single thing you do actually makes a difference to the company. And that right there is so fulfilling. It's when you're pigeonholed and you don't feel like you're making a difference. That's when you lose the passion and, and you say, you know, why am I here? Do you think realistically it's it's even possible for big companies? Now you mentioned GE as a good example, even if they're huge, that they keep people's kind of drive and, and, and passion, but also because hopefully because they have a bigger bigger mission as well as a company overall. There, there's lots of facts nowadays in surveys and, and statistics backing up the fact that what we call nowadays the purpose of a company, if that's very well declared and everybody's kind of buying into that bigger purpose, the bigger idea about the existence, existence of a company, if they do buy into it, that it definitely leads to eventually also great uh, results, great performance. I mean, they're typically doubling their, their returns. So, so not purpose-driven in the sense of purpose camaraderie kind of feeling, but really purpose which gives them clarity, which gives them direction, and therefore they're doing the right things. It's much more kind of a, of a compass or self-leadership involved, which creates those great, great numbers as well. Exactly. So, uh, but if we, if we dream a little bit and say that you right now have all doors open to you and all kinds of resources available to you, what would you innovate or change? I would get rid of all of the headaches in healthcare, which a lot of it, things like the EMR. So I would streamline that and, and make it compatible across all healthcare systems so that it's easy to transfer the data and everyone has easy access and uh, the doctor and the nurse don't have to sit there and type into it. It's just well done, just like, a, you know, Apple does things or Amazon does things really well done with their user experience and makes it less intrusive. I would love to fix that in healthcare for people. And if you could give one uh, piece of advice uh, to leaders, what would it be? Invest in your employees. They're the ones who are carrying the company for you. So invest in them, invest your time, invest in education, invest in their passion and their happiness level. Great. And, and is there, given everything you've done so far, is there um, one of your like most important beliefs that you carry with you as your piece of truth all the time? Yes. Uh, work with givers. Because um, if you have read Adam Grant, Give and Take, and he has a very famous TED Talk around this, people's personalities are divided between givers, matchers, and takers. And, you know, it's all a spectrum. And when you are surrounded by givers and you and you, you yourself are a giver, they are the most successful people in business. And so really... Being in that environment means everybody wins. When you're in an environment with a lot of takers or even just one taker in a corporate environment can dramatically upset the entire ecosystem and um, everyone's emotions around that. But if you have a lot of givers, then most people are incredibly happy because they're always thinking about other people and how do you make them happy? And if you 
approach life and approach your colleagues with that kind of mindset, approach your customers with that kind of mindset, everybody wins. And it comes back to you in many, many ways. So, so true. It's the way I live my life. And I talk about it throughout my second book too. Really just live your life as a giver. And, and what do you think is the absolutely most important thing for uh, all companies out there to focus on right now? Focus on innovation, because if you are not thinking about innovation or incorporating the latest technologies and thinking forward to five or 10 years, you're going to be absorbed. It's estimated that about 40% of Fortune 500 companies are going to be disrupted in some way over the next few years. And so make sure that you're not one of them by really keeping up to date on the trends, on what's going on in regulations, what's going on in other countries, so that you can incorporate the good technologies that will be able to not only keep up with your competitors, but actually come out ahead. And how do you um, keep you know, up to date on, on all the things that are relevant to your business, which is a lot? Yes. So typically what I do is I read two hours of tech news a day. So I really understand what's on the cutting edge. And I constantly go to conferences because I'm a professional speaker. So I'm at a lot of different events. And you've got to look at conferences. These are educational events, right? You're not going to a TEDx where you're seeing you know, a wide range of interesting things. You're going to conferences that are in your industry or relevant for your industry. And it's not just what's going on on stage, but really talking to, every other, uh, to other people. So what are the corporations doing in your world? What are the entrepreneurs doing in your world, right? And, and really understanding that. And so that just takes time on a daily basis, which, you know, if you're a doctor or a lawyer, you've got to take continuing education anyway, right? So you may as well just think about this in terms of your own profession. Learning is a lifelong thing that you need to do, right? So every day, just learn a little bit more about your industry and make sure you're keeping up on cutting edge trends. And the easiest way also to do that is follow the thought leaders that are in that particular industry, as well as just send, set things like Google alerts or, or really just curate your social media so that you are following the people that are relevant in that industry. And then you, you can just open up Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn and get your news for the day if you curate it well. Great advice. And what about you? If, if you were to give advice to yourself, let's say 10, 15 years ago, what would it be? It would be to start my thought leadership journey back then. I even tell college kids and high school students, start it now. Like a high school student can get a 20-page PDF-style book up on Amazon, and that would change their life. I mean, literally change their life. And so really starting my thought leader journey much earlier in my career. And why? what would have been the difference, do you think, now? I wouldn't have gone through any of that bias or abuse or sabotage. And that, that was significant. I mean, for the year that I, after I left that company, I mean, I would just start to have an anxiety attack every time I saw the name of my abuser, right? And so that was long-lasting effect. It affected my career back then. It affected my mental state and my health. And so it would have made a massive difference because it makes you a lot more powerful, so especially if you're a young female or something, so if you're in your early 20s, right, you don't have a lot of power yet because you don't have a, a career history. You might be just out of school. 
that book, that 20 page book or 50 page book that you get done in a week, that is bigger than having a degree. It's more powerful. Great advice. The first couple of years sometimes can be really hard when you are changing things or building up a thought leadership career or starting something new like a podcast or a new company. And, you know, those first beginning of it, you know, the first hours, the first year, the first months, those are the hardest and you can do it. If I can do it as a chronic disease patient, 100% you can do it. Don't think of all the barriers in your mind. There are ways to get around anything that is in your way, whether that's because you don't feel like you're a good enough writer, there's a way to get it done. You know, maybe you don't think you are um, whatever, like a strong enough leader. There are ways to make yourself a stronger leader. So anything is possible. Just believe in yourself. Robin, my final question, uh, a big one maybe is, uh, is this one. What do you think the world needs most at this time? Oh, the world needs most. I mean, there's so much from love, of course, so love and and being a giver. But I think probably it would be uh, world hunger and access to medications. And so really providing access to those people who were not born with any type of privileges. And there's so many. There are so many billions of people who are living below the poverty line. And so really getting equal, you know, just getting them healthcare and food, you know, the very basics that the rest of us take for granted. Sure. Food, healthcare, education. So true. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Robin. And um, thanks for sharing everything uh, from your beautiful mind and heart. And also for people to find out more about you, uh, they can head to the website, right? RobinFF.com, right? Exactly. I'm the only Robin Farm and Farmian in the entire universe. And even if you try and Google my name, it'll correct the spelling probably for you because Farm and Farmian is so crazy long. And so it's very easy to find me. Okay. And everyone will also find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. Um, so remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify and Acast and share this episode with people you know would benefit from hearing Robin. Please rate also and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. Thanks so, so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao, Robin. Ciao.